linguistic Greetings from Fire Ravage San Diego. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how are you today? I hope all of our fellow saloners in Southern California fared well during the firestorms that swept through this area during the past week or so. I know that uh, late the other night, Zandor and Mrs. Z from the Grow Report podcast at dopefiend.co.uk posted an update on their situation in the form of a podcast that I downloaded late the other night. And uh, the good news is that they came through in pretty good shape. And I'll have more to say about the firestorm at the end of this podcast. But first, I uh, think it would be more interesting to get on with the program that I'd already planned before the world turned temporarily upside down. First of all, I, I want to send my deep gratitude to Jason M. and Susan L. for their more than generous donations that came in a week or so ago. I learned of your donations just before disconnecting my PC to load into my car for the evacuation, and I want to say that your kindness came at a particularly good time for me, and it made me realize just how much I have to be thankful for. And while I'm on the subject of donations, uh, until Zandor and Mrs. Z from the GroveReport.com get 100% back on their feet after the fire, it would be uh, wonderful if any of you who get the urge to make a small donation send it to the Zandors. Besides helping us out here in the salon by setting up the Psychedelic Salon Forum for us on their GrowReport.com site, the Zandors are also providing a lot of very valuable information to the medical cannabis growers all over the world. And by the way, uh, one of the really positive things to come out of our fire experience is that I discovered how close I live to the Zandors. And now I'm uh, hoping to arrange for them to come down and spend a night or so with us here in the not-too-distant future. As Terrence McKenna often said, find the others. And thanks to this fire, the Zandors and I have found each other. Now, before I introduce today's program, I also want to make a, another little announcement that some of you already know about from my posting on the forums, where uh, Zandor set up the Psychedelic Salon forum for us to use, and uh, that posting was about Sasha Shulgin. Uh, here's what I posted there last Friday. I guess it's the Friday before last now. Uh, quote, This past Sunday, October 21st, Sasha was hospitalized and treated for strep bovi. The good news is that he should be coming home by this weekend. According to Wendy, the mother of Sasha's two-year-old playmate Audrey, all is well and hopefully will remain so. So I asked if there was anything uh, that any of us could do to help, and the family said that it would be great for people to send cards to the house. And their address is uh, Sasha Shulgin, 1483 Shulgin Road, Lafayette, California, L-A-F-A-Y-E-T-T-E, Lafayette, California, 94549. So if you've ever felt like saying thank you to our dear Sasha, this would be a perfect time to do so. And now uh, I'm happy to report that in the comments section under that posting, Psychocentric and Crackajacka have noted that their cards to Sasha are already on the way. Thanks, guys. That's uh, really kind of you. And yesterday I learned that Sasha actually came home last Saturday and uh, is getting stronger every day, which means he uh, still may be able to finish his new book by the end of this year. And that, of course, is great news for all of us. The only little cloud on the horizon being that he still has to go in for a heart valve operation, possibly in January. So uh, please keep those positive vibes heading Sasha's way for a little while longer. Now, uh, getting on with today's talk by Terrence McKenna, we're actually going to pick up where we left off the week before last. At the time I published that podcast, I kind of lamely said I didn't know the title or even the date of that lecture. Had I not already started getting sick, I would have taken the time to contact Diana, the angel who gave me that recording, and asked for a few more details. Fortunately, she uh, didn't wait for me to get well enough to send an email and ask, and instead she sent the information without waiting for me. So uh, here's the story about last week's McKenna talk. It was titled Syntax of Psychedelic Time, and it was recorded in July 1983, which uh, means it came shortly after the talk 
that he gave at the Psychedelics and Spirituality Conference that you can hear in Podcast 100. Now, in our last program, we heard side one of that tape, and today I'm going to play side two from the same lecture. At the time I was producing that last podcast, I started to add the side two tape, but it started in the middle of a thought, and in my dazed and confused brain at the time, I I was sure that it wasn't connected to side one. Why I thought such a thing, I have no idea, but uh, at the time it made perfect sense. However, uh, what really must have happened is that whomever made that recording missed a a chunk when the tape ran to the end and then reversed. And and by the way, I want to mention that uh, Elizor Salvanoran also pointed this out uh, to me, the title, etc., via a comment on the PsychedelicSalon.org blog where the program notes for these podcasts are posted. And uh, thanks for posting that, Elizor. It was a big help to us all. The uh, second side of the tape, which we're about to listen to now, begins with what sounds like the end of the lecture, but uh, then it immediately begins without the Q&A that I thought would follow based on uh, the first few minutes of the tape. All of which leads me to believe that uh, this tape may have had some editing done to it at some point. But in any event, uh, there are some fascinating McKenna ideas here that I hadn't picked up on before. So uh, let's join the Bard McKenna when he was speaking to a small crowd in Berkeley, California, sometime in July, 1983. So that they actually look down on their culture. They become extra-environmentals, is a way of putting this. They act uh, the role of the extraterrestrial. And, and uh, we all can act the role of the extraterrestrial when, and do when we adopt this extra-environmental position. It can be viewed as alienation if what arises out of it is uh, uh, a feeling of forlornness and being cast into being, as Heidegger says. But that need not necessarily be the feeling. The extra-environmental is also tremendously uh, freed from the cultural conditioning. <laughs> and when you travel, you are always an extra-environmental, an extra-environmental and you have a uh, very deep insight into societies that you may only spend a short time in. Uh, I think the, the emerging archetype of the other or the alien is an effort to integrate alienation and actually make it a positive thing. And I think I mentioned either here or on Will's show about E.T. and how clever this was to make people identify with something which looks like a cross between a can of anchovies and the Pillsbury Doughboy. And to actually, you know, love is what that movie is about. And it's alien love. And uh, it's a very important form of love to cultivate because this process of integration of the electronic overself that is one way of looking at the end of history, that is... uh, that is the process that we're all involved in. And psychedelics, uh, which I haven't mentioned too much tonight, but which I hope you realize are the uh, entire source and motivation and raison d'etre of all of this. Because what psychedelics are doing, uh, are they are anticipating this future state, this electronic global information organism is in fact already present in the same way that most of the future is present in the past. I mean, think of any point in the past. Think of 1950. Think how much of today was present in 1950. It means that this idea that science fiction has sold us that the future is a total other world just up around the bend, it isn't actually true. The future is uh, 95% present in the present. And it is that 5% that eludes us that will provide the great adventure for the next 20, 30, 40 years as we come to terms with the fact that uh, 
we are moving off into the human imagination. That's what this godlike thing is. It is not a filled space, a loving figure, an angel, a god, or a demon. It is an empty space, a space which we will fill uh, with our dreams, essentially, because our dreams have always been the appetition leading us forward into history. But we have not understood why, especially over the last 500 years when it's become very unfashionable to believe in dreams and visions and revelations. But I think actually the faith is well-founded. It's well-founded because of the nature of the physics of time. And that is a physics that your own experience will reinforce for you if you, uh, if you examine it carefully enough. Thank you once again very much. I think we're going to have a brief break and then uh, questions. Thank you. There's no question but what the human imagination has now taken to itself so much power that it can no longer remain on the surface of the planet. We sort of have to part company with the planet for our own good and for its. And uh, it's just a uh, commonplace of evolutionary theory that every frontier presents a genetic barrier because only the hale, the hardy, the adventurous, uh, the healthy go. Certainly space is going to be the tightest genetic filter of that sort that has ever been uh, laid on a human population. It's said, you know, that the dynamics of North American society are due to the fact that we're we can all trace ourselves back to misfits and malcontents and religious screwballs and all these people who were out of it relative to Europe came here. A very similar thing will obviously happen in space. Uh, but your question is interesting. I can't quote him exactly, but when I spoke in Santa Cruz, Tim Poston, who's a mathematician, after it was all over, he, he quoted a modern poet saying, it won't end with a statue of Jane Mansfield 50 miles high. It won't end, and he lists several things. It will just go on. It will continue and continue and continue. And perhaps that's what human society will always be about. Perhaps there will always be a tacky element and we will always uh, flop on the seamy side. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The things which we take to be so basic to humanness, such as all that that I just mentioned, have all arisen uh, since this hypothetical moment in Julian Jaynes' theory when we integrated the ego. Perhaps uh, integrating the superego will actually make us stand taller and see more clearly into each other's needs. Uh, I think that the old evolutionary model, which was that evolution was the struggle of the fittest and the devil take the hindmost, is pretty much discredited. And we now understand that... Uh, what is maximized in evolution is not the sharpness of the fang or the, or the length of the claw, but the ability to cooperate with other species harmoniously. That's what's being maximized. Every parasite, or, or I mean every disease, wants to be simply a benign parasite. No disease wants to see its host die because then the party is over for everyone. <laughs> Uh, so I would say in answer to your question, I'm hopeful, but I certainly uh, 
humans are a perverse lot and I suppose reasonably what one can hope for is incremental advancement toward the good I studied political philosophy under Joe Tussman and one of his favorite remarks he used to say to us was when you look around at the world it's a terrible show to be run by angels but if you think of it as run by monkeys pretty amazing <laughs> another question <laughs> any other question <laughs> yes yeah, I'd like to know uh, if uh, you had any experience with that I mean uh, what do you think of its place in the uh, future and interesting question what what about ketamine uh, what do I think about it well different things first of all uh, you all know what ketamine is or shall I briefly sketch it okay this is a psychedelic drug that's recently come on the scene that uh, is what's called a disassociative anesthetic it was used as a veterinary and children's anesthetic from the early 60s onward and it was only slowly was it realized that uh, at low doses there were peculiar psychic phenomena and uh, when done as an anesthetic it's done 600 ml IV push that means straight into the vein under pressure as fast as you can 600 milliliters which would be just like being hit by a truck but when it's done uh, for its I don't like to say recreationally so when it's done for its uh, psychic effects it's done like a hundred milliliters IM into the muscle and uh, it's a it's a troubling psychedelic because a lot of people I think are doing it who have never done any other and I think that would be very very misleading when I did it the first thing that my first reaction was complete amazement that here was a category of experience that I had no idea existed in other words it was a slot on the bookshelf that I didn't realize was there it is not like mescaline not like LSD not like psilocybin not like DMT not like ayahuasca not like any of these things and yet you cannot get away from the fact that it's a powerful psychedelic so it's it's useful for that alone to further expand the definition of what is a psychedelic drug the problem that I have I have two problems with it and both of them may be curmudgeonly on my part so you don't have to take it from me the first one is that it's very easy the first thing that happens after you've done ketamine is you cease to be concerned that you've done ketamine before there is any other effect that effect takes hold and uh, that's a funny thing I'm on on these tryptamine hallucinogens you are fully aware that you've taken a drug that you're walking on eggshells that you should keep yourself alert to what's going on and, and in other words it puts you on your toes you know you're in a dimension of risk and opportunity and you comport yourself that way on ketamine your definitions dissolve so completely that it's a major accomplishment to realize that you're a human being on a drug you keep discovering and losing that realization you keep saying oh yes that's what it is I'm somebody and I'm stoned somewhere and that's what this is now it's coming back to me which brings me to the second thing about ketamine which is puzzling and this is a problem with all psychedelic drugs but but you have to sort of get a life strategy for dealing with it because it's important to overcome and that is it's very state bounded which is a term that the psychologist Roland Fisher coined which means you can't remember anything about it 
It's like an intense dream where you're intensely dreaming and the alarm goes off and as you stumble to the shower, it's just... and there is nothing there. And ketamine is very much like this. There's, while you're on it, there is a complete conviction that this is of staggering import to you and mankind. <laughs> and then it is just totally mercurial and elusive and slips away. Now that in itself is obviously an interesting experience. And uh, so ketamine seems to teach obliquely it teaches you that there are psychedelic states that you might not have called psychedelic. It teaches you that there are uh, wonderful insights that totally uh, elevate you that you can't remember 15 seconds later. Uh, so it sort of teaches you the richness of mind, but uh, by example rather than by the imparting of information that you can take away. And then, whenever this question is asked, uh, unlike my acquaintance John Lilly, I always feel like I have to say to people, if you're going to take a new drug, you should go to the medical literature and read it. And I know there's this much in reprints on ketamine, because I have it. And uh, what it will tell you is that um, there's a kindling effect which means each time you do it, it is easier the next time to get loaded. Uh, however, on the uh, neurophysiological level, or the level of uh, an electroencephalogram, this kindling effect is, can be, cons I don't want to say it's dangerous, I just want to say it's a warning sign, because the same kind of kindling will uh, uh, proceed uh, petite mal seizure and other forms of seizure let me say though on this matter of, of drugs and how you judge them especially now since there are so many drugs in the MDA series making their way into society MDA, MMDA, MDMA MDMA, MMDA2 a whole gamut of these and there will be more down through the years I've always taken the position that uh, it was important that the psychedelic have a relationship to a plant. And uh, that's almost a perfect fit for me because I approve of psilocybin and it comes from a plant and masculine and it comes from a plant. And LSD is sort of problematic because the LSD-25 that is what most people are familiar with is not from a plant that's a creature of pure of the laboratory but uh, analogs active in the milligram range diethyl uh, lysergic acid amide uh, occur in morning glories of several species and in ergot uh, and in some cases non-toxically so I as I live into the 80s, it's becoming harder and harder to maintain this thing about the importance of the plant because so many people don't, can't imagine what you're talking about. They are totally devoted to one or another completely synthetic drug and are having revelations and uh, loving insights and all these things. And so I feel a little bit like a Puritan. But until I know more about it, uh, for myself, that's sort of the categories I'll work with. Also, I'm the the plant drugs almost always have a shamanic tradition associated with them that's several thousand years old. So they're use tested in human societies, both for psychic effects and physiological effects. Uh, if a drug has been taken for ten thousand years, chances are it's fairly benign. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, I was wondering if you, if you read in the introduction of uh, Suicidium by Boston America a statement that the author purports to be from the mushroom, whereby the mushroom offers a uh, possible symbiote for the humans, uh, offers to uh, give them information on how to build 
I've read that introduction, yes. You're a brave man to ask the question. Uh, oh no, I shouldn't kid you. I wrote the introduction. <laughs> Because I am Otios and my brother is Owen Eric. I can tell you this now because this book is going out of print. Uh, well, when we wrote that, uh, that, was, uh, that was straight transcription. That's what the mushroom said. Uh, I don't know exactly what to make of this. These things stretch our... Uh, our uh, categories because we, we because it deals with our own definition of humanness uh, it's curious that the psilocybin mushroom that my book is about or that our book is about occurs in the dung of domesticated cattle the Indian humpback cattle Bos indicus uh, so that it has been since very early in human history uh, in a sense a symbiote of man because a symbiote of a domesticated animal which man had a symbiotic relationship with and when you study symbiosis uh, among lower animals you often find this situation where it isn't simply two species involved but three or even more uh, the mushroom has this peculiar ability to invoke or allow or trigger a voice in the head this logos-like phenomenon of information unrolling in your head uh, no other drug that I'm familiar with does that consistently and our model of what psychedelic drugs should do has no room in it for this our model of what psychedelic drugs should do is derived from Freud and then secondarily from Jung from Freud we derive the idea that the psychedelic drug should uh, introduce you to neurotic thought processes repressed memory traumatic experience um, guilt uh, laden incidents that have been forgotten this sort of thing from Jung we inherit the idea that beyond that there is a landscape of myth and that we will encounter the great mythological motifs of the collectivity of the human psyche but what psilocybin seems to be saying is that yes these two areas do exist but beyond them and far larger than them if we can speak of such dimensions in terms of relative size there is an area which has very little to do with humanness collective or particular it is simply like a landscape it is a world in the mind but not related to our neuroses or our religious totemic and mythological figures it is in fact highly independent of the human ego but nevertheless discoverable uh, uh, through these drugs and uh, in those dimensions we come up against things like the voice of the mushroom claiming to represent a galactic form of organism or uh, what are conventionally called angels or demons or jinns or afrites in other words these traditional but rarely encountered by modern people autonomous forms of psychic existence and we have no models for those things for our civilization the other if it exists can only come from the stars in ships 
It must be a carbon-based life form with the political and social and intellectual aspirations similar to ourselves. Science is not yet ready to entertain the idea that all points in our universe may be cotangent, that every form of intelligence in the cosmos may have the potential to communicate with every other uh, in the here and now simply because to do this science would uh, throw open a floodgate of information that it cannot deal with the repression of magic has been a very important part of science's program for explaining the world not because science has anything uh, intrinsic an intrinsic antagonism to magic but simply because magic if tolerated would unleash more information than any scientific theory can cope with scientific theories must first limit the amount of information that they're dealing with before they can begin to model things so in answer to your question about the mushroom and its role in human history I've gone through many changes about this since the mushroom began talking to me since I wrote that forward I have a manuscript now which uh, one of the titles that we toy with for it is uh, alien intelligence and psilocybin although it probably won't be called that a lot of what it deals with is that is the fact that postmodern people which is you and me are getting in touch with something which modern the modern worldview cannot handle at all for modernity voices in the head are a clear instance of pathology and yet for the Hellenistic world and the wor the postmodern world voices in the head are a clear uh, aspect of uh, following the path and this was classic before the rise of the forms of reductionist thought that characterize modern thinking Socrates had a demon he mentions it many times it told him what to say it helped him with what he should think and uh, it was a commonplace for sages and philosophers of that time to make that kind of claim uh, psilocybin places it within the reach of modern people but it also by so doing serves to demonstrate that the old models of psyche Freudian and Jungian just won't serve I don't think that these things can be reconciled very easily I think science if it's going to take up the Enochian tables and that sort of thing is going to transform itself to the point where it will no longer be science uh, Paul Feyerabend who lives in Berkeley I don't know if he still teaches has written a couple of books one called Against Method and another one called Science in a Free Society and he makes the point there that uh, science has really become an enemy of the free society simply by virtue of the fact that it, it wishes to uh, arbitrate all models so that somebody says well I believe the universe is such and so and everyone says well go ask the scientists if it's true or not uh, this is a staggering amount of power for, for any group of people to have especially a group of people whose accomplishments and I'm not now talking about the technicians and the engineers but the scientists what they have accomplished is only to give us an unrecognizably abstract model of the world uh, so I would prefer a world of intellectual pluralism where uh, astrology and astronomy and Kabbalah and information theory and all these things worked in their own uh, area but no one claimed preeminence because you see this claiming of preeminence uh, rests on a false assumption no idea can be dismissed that is internally consistent there's nothing more than that science is not more than internally self-consistent and astrology is not less than 
internally self-consistent. So why should these things be placed on two different levels in terms of uh, arbit uh, being arbiters of the truth? So I think that, uh, that there will be, by psychology for instance, uh, fringe human abilities and things like that discovered. But I think higher magic will always operate according to the laws of higher magic and that this will be a closed book to science simply because uh, of the nature of the premises of both uh, concerns. One of the things I didn't get to say about this time theory that I put down this evening was that uh, it's a very anti-scientific theory. It cannot be integrated. This is not merely a physics of time that can be grafted onto orthodox physics and have science survive because what I'm saying has certain uh, consequences in the realm of cause and effect and experimental design that make uh, what is normally called uh, a scientific experience out of the question. And another untestable hypothesis that riddles science from end to end is the idea that if A causes B at time F, then A will cause B at time anything else. And that's just obviously nonsense in any realm where we experience things. But it's necessary to believe that... And so what science ends up being able to do, this is interesting, science then becomes a way of explaining anything which happens the same way over and over again regardless of the time that it happens. We could almost describe science as uh, the descriptive, uh, that branch of human knowledge which is concerned with the description of those processes which are not affected by the time in which they occur. And, those pro and none of those processes are interesting to living, thinking, feeling people because everything you experience is unique. Every moment, every event, every person, every situation. So what's happening here? Something is happening to the monkeys and it's very dangerous and it takes about 25,000 years to happen. It's a mad rush because for it to happen, the most dangerous processes in the universe have to lie present at hand. Nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, uh, social control, genetic control. Everything has to be possible for the good to be possible. The species is completely free to mirror itself. That is, in fact, apparently what this test is about. What freedom means is you find out how good you are by discovering what you do when you have the power to destroy yourself. And we as a species are in that position and no one can do it but us. And if we do not destroy ourselves, then very obviously the intellectual tools that we have taken in hand are the tools which will send us uh, out to the stars. Now, as far as this idea that I talked about tonight, about uh, temporal fractals and the nature of time and that sort of thing, that is only one aspect of this conquest of reality by information and I think you can see if you look back through biological and cultural history though no one so far as I know has ever actually described it this way what it really is is the conquest of dimensions with the earliest uh, forms of life you get they are like the amoeba they essentially have a tactile perception they can only perceive what they are immediately physically in contact with. And then in slightly higher organisms, you get the evolution of cells which distinguish light and dark. So there is at least the idea of a sense that there is something out there that comes and goes that cannot be tactilely recorded. It's the coming and going of light. 
But then as organisms advance in complexity, the eye is where the evolutionary thrust comes once you get past the eye spot. Then uh, there is a sense of things at a distance which do not tactilely impinge upon the organism, but which nevertheless have importance for the organism. They are distant pieces of food or distant enemies, and uh, the organism learns to move toward or away from these things, and toward or away are dimensional concepts. Then, when you get truly mobile organisms, you get... Uh, for instance, like monkeys or that sort of thing, they move in a much larger control space and they move through it to grasp what they desire and, and you get the evolution of a tactile sense that is under the control of the eye. And then uh, that essentially ends with the binocular vision and the bipedal locomotion that ends the conquest of physical dimension for biological objects but you then get uh, language which seems to have something to do with time because language allows memory and the recollection of memory so that past states can be brought to bear on the present with an eye toward anticipation of the future. And suddenly you realize that what language is allowing this organism to do is to claim a whole new dimension. Language then is a dimension, uh, a dimension exploring vehicle of some sort. And to what degree, we don't know. Because, for instance, obviously, as animals, we contact the dimensions past and future. These are dimensions with great importance to an animal because uh, what you learned in the past may keep you from being eaten in the future. But then, once you have the luxury of civilization, we get language applied to subjects which are neither related to the past nor the future, like mathematics. And la mathematics is a language which has gone out and described uh, multidimensional spaces. I think that you know, nothing is more exquisite than the interior music. And all music is obviously an effort to approximate this interior music. And I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I'm sure you all know the story of Beethoven saying, you know, if you, if you could hear what I can hear, you wouldn't bother with what I've written because it's just compared to what I'm hearing. Uh, you have to, it's, it's, a knife edge because the music does lead deeper into these visionary states but I still think that once you are where you want to be that if you can cast loose from exterior musical input that this interior music will rise into perception and reward you for that uh, the way that I take psychedelic drugs seems very natural to me, but then when I describe it to groups of people like this, I realize that people have all kinds of styles, and this ca has caused the psychedelic experience to be sort of blurrily defined in the mass mind. My idea of how you take a psychedelic drug is that you reduce sensory input as low as you can without the reduction itself becoming an impediment. In other words, I'm not talking about isolation tanks and all that. I'm just saying a dark, quiet, calm, cool, empty room is the best kind of situation. And... Uh, some of the most interesting trips that I've had have been to the accompaniment of a single sound which is simply a drone. It's like the bindu, the seed around which then the multiplicity of the hallucinogenic vision can gather itself and constellate. I mean, I blush to tell you this, but some of my most interesting uh, trips have been to the accompaniment of my floor heater, which makes a buzz like a refrigerator. And that 
buzz becomes, you know, the cutting edge of a light, which is like a comet giving off in the eddies of its trail hallucination, all the hallucinations there are. So I think that music is intrinsic to everything that we're talking about. We are aspiring to the condition of music and we need music, therefore we should have it as an exterior input uh, when we can have it no other way. So saying that, mus that I don't listen to music during those states is not a put down of music. Uh, music is obviously the ideal because it is one of these tonal languages <coughs> that you understand by hearing. It is an Ursprach. It has, it's a language of emotion. Yeah. Real quick question. According to the, uh, the, to the graphs that you developed, it seems to me, and, and, and to the end date that you were able to pin down, that you could have almost your own running biorhythm chart based on this graph and tell when, whether novelty is going to be coming up in the next week or three months or whatever. Have you gone that far? Oh, yes, definitely. One of the things that I do is I have a counseling service called Anamnesis. And the reason I organized it as a counseling service was because I wanted people to interact with my wave on the level of their personal history and I didn't want them to be contaminated by being my friends. So I basically just advertised this service in Common Ground which says something about understand novelty in your life, maps of the past and the future, this and that. And then people come to me and I interview them about their life and we search the wave for a good fit to their life and then we integrate their wave as a statistical component of the larger wave and then we can make maps of the present, the next six months, the next 10 or 15 years at different levels and then people live it out and see if it works see if when the graph indicates novelty in their life should be increasing, it is increasing, and when it shouldn't be, it doesn't. It's like I've invented a one-term form of astrology. It only talks about novelty. It tells you when it will go up, when it will go down. It doesn't in any given situation say what will happen. It only defines the level of novelty that must be fulfilled by whatever happens. Synchronicity, you see, what, what, uh, one way that I think of this time wave is orthodox chemistry, physics, biology, uh, probability theory, all these things go together to describe what m is possible so you say, you know, could an asteroid strike the Earth? Let's ask the science. And they say, well, yes, it's possible. There are enough of them. The probability is very low. Or you say, you know, can we cleave this molecule with the input of this energy? And you say, well, yes, it's possible. Physics allows for that. But what my theory seeks to describe is not what is possible, but what out of the set of all possible things why is it that certain things undergo the formality of actually occurring? It is as though they are selected out of this vast pool of possible things, things which could happen without violating any known laws. But out of that vast reservoir, certain things undergo the formality of occurring. And once they have occurred, the fact of their occurring has defined the level of novelty in that now past moment. And so that's what it's like this novelty wave is a, an additional variable which has to be added into physical laws. It's the variable which dictates what out of, out of the possible states which ones actually are realized. And it's the flux, the coming and going of that wave of novelty which controls that. Now, if there, you're in a highly novel situation, then you get what Lilly calls cosmic coincidence or Jung calls synchronicity. You get obvious connections which have no obvious casuistry behind them. They, they are connected through meaning, not through the chain of cause and effect. And that is simply happening because 
the level of novelty is so great that these sideways connections are beginning to come apparent and at the end of time or at the ingression into this higher dimension I think this will become excruciatingly uh, present in the foreground of our experience in other words synchronicity is getting stronger coincidence is getting stronger the world is becoming more irrational science did work better in the 19th century than it's working in the 20th because reality is slowly slipping through its fingers there was a maximum moment when the dreams of science and the nature of reality overlaid almost perfectly but now reality is growing beyond it and pulling away from it and uh, I think soon I shall be pulling away from this meeting. <laughs> Thank you very much. What an amazing mind he had, don't you think? I'm sure you caught it, but uh, do you remember when Terence said, the mushroom has this particular ability to invoke or allow or trigger a voice in the head, this logos-like phenomena of information unrolling in your head? No other drug that I'm familiar with does that consistently. But when I heard him say that, my first thought was, what about ayahuasca? But the more I think about it, the more I've come to agree with him. Without exception, the mushroom brings me a definite Logos-like voice in my head every time. Ayahuasca, on the other hand, at least to me, doesn't present this uh, Logos voice. Lady A is uh, much more direct in that she speaks to me as a distinct entity, sort of like the voice of Mother Earth, if you will. Once you've had both experiences several times yourself, uh, my guess is that you'll be able to distinguish these subtle differences uh, on your own. And most likely it won't even take multiple experiences. As the Bard often said, pay attention. Pay attention. And speaking of paying attention, after uh, my last podcast, the first person to write and point out the little mystery that I alluded to was Jay, who you will remember was the benefactor who provided the recordings for Podcast 100 and uh, for several others. Here's uh, part of what he wrote. Just wanted to say that I did notice the November 2012 date mentioned by Terrence in the above podcast, rather than the usual December 21st we've all heard is the end date of the time wave. Some refinement made by Terence in the mid-80s, perhaps? Well, uh, until we hear some more of Terence's early lectures on the subject, I'm not going to draw any final conclusions. But uh, it is a neat little mystery that I'm sure will be cleared up eventually. And thanks for uh, stopping by for a visit a few weeks ago, Jay. It was uh, a real honor to meet you in person, and I look forward to our next in-person get-together. I don't have the time to go into this in any detail right now, but I want to thank several of our fellow saloners for uh, creating some logos for the salon. I hope you haven't been thinking that I didn't like them or appreciate them, uh, because that's not the case at all. My plan all along has been to set up a page on our website where they can be displayed and downloaded by any of you who want to link to the salon from your own sites. It's, uh, it's just a little project that keeps slipping away on me, but uh, I'll see that it gets done before too much longer. But I really do appreciate your creativity and hard work, and uh, I think all of the logos you've sent are quite brilliant, and uh, hopefully they'll be online soon. Well, there's several other emails and postings that I'd like to comment on right now, but I'm going to use my remaining allocation of daily energy for more of a personal note instead. If you've been with us here in the salon for a long time, I'm sure you'll recall me mentioning that my ultimate purpose in producing these podcasts is to leave a few traces of myself for my grandchildren's grandchildren to hear, sort of a message in a time capsule. And during my days as a lawyer, I discovered that uh, when an older person dies, there's so much stuff to go through and get rid of that nine times out of ten, the deceased's last wishes are ignored primarily due to the press of events and lack of time to go through everything. For example, uh, somewhere in one of my many boxes of journals and other writing that I've done throughout my life are the letters that my dad sent to my mother during the time he was serving in the Navy during World War II, or the big one, as he liked to call it. But to be honest, I, uh, I really don't expect them to be discovered due to the haphazard way I've thrown things together. Heck, I probably uh, already threw them out myself without even knowing it. 
So the rest of this podcast is intended primarily for my descendants to hear so they can get a sense of what one of their ancestors was thinking during these turbulent times. Part of what I'm about to say is a political rant. It's something I've done my best to avoid in these podcasts, so uh, don't feel like you'll be missing anything if you get on with the next item in your queue. There's uh, nothing earth-shaking here, just a little venting on my part to make me feel better. It's been a long couple of weeks here in San Diego. Our worst fears were realized in that our county had to face a true firestorm. Since there are so many accounts of the blazes all over the web now, I'll only mention one thing that may have been missed unless you paid close attention. And that is about the Department of U.S. Government that is supposed to help in these circumstances. It's an outfit called FEMA. Now, before I continue, I, I want to point out the fact that just like there's a big difference between the U.S. government and the American people, the same is true of FEMA management and the thousands of volunteers who gear up to staff the organization in a crisis. Uh, the people inside the system, for the most part, are really good people. But the system they're laboring in sucks. It sucks big time. Our local firefighters started working on a Saturday, but by Sunday the desert winds began to blow in earnest and uh, picked up to a steady 50 miles per hour with gusts to 70 here in town, and in the mountains they peaked at more than 100 miles an hour. If I'm not mistaken, uh, our fellow saloners in Greece, Italy, and other parts of Europe know exactly what this means because uh, it wasn't long ago that they had to battle a similar inferno in their areas. Basically, uh, think hurricane, but with fire instead of water being driven by the wind. It was a very dicey situation, to say the least. Within hours of the declaration of an emergency, though, our wonderful neighbors to the south in the city of Tijuana, Mexico, sent both men and equipment to help fight the fires. And their help was not only invaluable, but it was considerably more help than we received at the time from FEMA. But it wasn't until afternoon on Wednesday that the first paper pushers from FEMA arrived on the scene, along with a handful of cots. The cots, of course, weren't needed by then because local merchants had already emptied out their warehouses and donated more than enough cots to cover the shelters. Then FEMA added insult to injury with their fake news conference where one of their top screwheads said he was very pleased with FEMA's response. And uh, maybe I should agree with that because by staying out of the way of our local and state firefighters and emergency workers, uh, they were able to do their jobs much better without the feds getting in the way. My point is that the federal government did essentially nothing to help in the early critical hours of this emergency. For example, our local officials began getting ready for this days ahead of time. As soon as the weather prediction said that we would be getting strong Santa Ana winds in the days ahead, just as they're predicting again right now for next weekend, well, our local officials went into action. They even were able to get the military to position some of its firefighting aircraft uh, close to here. Uh, had those planes been used on Saturday and Sunday, things might have been very different. But uh, they sat on the ground for days waiting for the proper paperwork to allow them to help. As it turned out, by the time the federal and military bureaucracy got their precious little pieces of paper all stamped and signed properly, the winds had become so fierce that those planes were grounded until later in the week. Every time I think about that, my blood begins to boil. So uh, let me get on to the positive part of this story. We learned something extremely valuable through all this, and that is, if your local officials have their act together and make their plans to handle things like this on their own, and not count on the federal government's help until after the fact, when the politicians can fly in for their photo ops and hand out a few big checks, if that's all you're counting on from the feds, uh, well, you can come through anything. In the end, the fact that the entire county wasn't burned to the ground can be attributed to the planning and heroics of the local, state, and out-of-county and out-of-state help that we got from our neighbors. Frankly, I was uh, astounded at the way this large community of about four million people came together. There's great wealth disparity in the U.S., and uh, this county is no exception. But I saw some rich people bringing food and supplies, help and comfort to the people in the shelters, and... And by the way, what was most impressive to me, though, was the amount of volunteer labor that came from the less fortunate in our community. 
For example, uh, on the first day of the firestorm, or second, whatever it was, on Monday, as I was shuttling between staging areas, I stopped to talk to some Mexicans who were cutting the lawn and cleaning up the yard of a neighbor of mine. And I asked them why they weren't home with their families. Because of the niños, they told me. Our babies need to eat tomorrow. Besides, one man said, their wives were already out volunteering at one of the shelters. Now, here in San Diego, uh, we're only a couple dozen kilometers from the border, and us Caucasians are in the minority here, so it's very easy for us to see how much of our everyday activities are enhanced by Mexican labor. And yes, we are aware of the fact that many of them probably are in the U.S. without proper documents, but the truth is, we can't exist here without them. They are our friends and neighbors, and quite frankly, their ancestors were living on this land for many centuries before the Spanish Catholic invaders drove them out. As far as I'm concerned, they have more of a right to live and work here than I do. And I also saw several news accounts where, uh, in the background, you could see wealthy landowners fleeing from their palatial homes while their day laborers continued to work the fields, all bent over and breathing this toxic air. And when they were questioned about why they continued to work as the fires raged around them, it was always the same. Our babies have to eat. For my money, these people are the real Americans here, not the bottled blonde beach bunnies and their rich boyfriends. In October of 2001, I wrote an essay titled, The Difference Between America and Americans. And it began, although this seems almost too obvious to point out, there are significant differences between the government of the United States, informally called America, and the people it purports to represent, Americans. Now, while that essay is somewhat out of date today, its uh, basic premise, I believe, remains true. Right now, 80% or more of the people living in the U.S. want Bush's war to end, and we want it to end today. Yet our opinion holds absolutely no sway with the demented screwheads in Washington who continue to enhance their own political power at the expense of we the people. In short, if 80% of the people can't get this war stopped, then I see absolutely no way that this can, by any stretch of the imagination, be called a democracy. As I wrote in an essay in January of 2005, Mythical America, rest in peace. Now, why am I taking all of this time to have this say in a podcast? Well, in the middle of this firestorm, I managed to contact pneumonia and had uh, what for me was uh, kind of a close call. So for the past week, I've been trying to sleep sitting up in bed and uh, more or less fading in and out of some fevered dreams. You know, I had a few of those long nights of the soul in which to take stock of my life and try to look ahead as positively as possible. And there still is a lot of processing I have left to do, but uh, many things have now become very clear to me. And uh, in some strange way, I now also feel much closer to many of our fellow Saloners, particularly the ones who feel stuck. Stuck like me, with no resources to move to a more sustainable place to live, and who also don't want to leave their close family ties behind them. Not a week goes by without my uh, receiving an email from someone who's living at home with parents who don't understand their interests in our sacred medicines. Well, guess what? That, uh, that problem can run in both directions. There are some of us parents who uh, do more or less get it, but our children don't. And hey, uh, who do we have to blame for that but ourselves? You know, we're the ones who laid those conservative boxed-in foundations that they now live in. At times, us uh, old hippies can sometimes feel as isolated as you do. This psychedelic adventure in consciousness exploration uh, uh, isn't an easy path to follow. It certainly isn't for the faint of heart, but uh, you, my dear friends, whether you use the medicine or not, you've chosen to do something new and unique and creative with your mind, rather than turn it over to our corporate masters whose main objective seems to be to suck the life out of us. So what can you do? What can any of us do? <laughs> Heck if I know. <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, complaining about lack of resources and opportunity isn't going to get us anywhere. It's what we do with what we've got, where we're at, that will eventually turn the tide for us. For me, that means continuing these podcasts at all costs. As William James pointed out, you can change your life simply by changing your attitude. 
and you do that one thought at a time. So I've decided to ignore all the great events over which I have absolutely no control. For me, everything from stopping this insane war to legalizing our sacred medicines is something uh, that those who want to continue rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic can do. I'm heading to higher ground and I'm beginning a quest to put a stake in a sustainable community somewhere before I die so that if everything does come completely unraveled, uh, at least my grandchildren will have an option, a place to come to. And whether I accomplish that or not, well, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that I try. It's the journey, after all, not the destination that makes this life worthwhile. And believe it or not, I've, I've really never been so optimistic about our future. The future of the psychedelic community, that is. I may not sound that way right now, but uh, hey, I'm a little tired and hurting and possibly still a little bit in shock. But you know what? Just by stepping way out of my box here and uh, dumping all of this on you, well, it's helped me feel orders of magnitude better. Thanks for listening. And uh, most of all, thanks for being here with me in the Psychedelic Salon. I'm really looking forward to our next time together, and I promise you that my next podcast is going to contain as much sunshine as it'll hold. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And hey, don't forget to send Sasha a Get Well card. That one thing would mean more to me than anything else you can do right now. So, bless you for doing that.